Um, so again, quiz at the end about all that, um, and we will have they'll turn those in. You swap them next to the person next to you, and they'll grade them. Um, but yes, uh, if you got your Bibles, we're going to get to we're going to get to the Bible. Let's talk about the Bible. Um, so we're going to get we're going to look at Hebrews 11, um, and so we're going to jump in. As the lectionary kind of you know, affords us, uh, we get four scriptures every Sunday to choose from on what we preach on. And I felt the Lord, the Holy Spirit, really guiding me to Hebrews 11. And so uh, we're going to catch it kind of towards the tail end of this letter that we don't know who it's from. Uh, somebody tells you they know who it's from. They're lying. Nobody knows who it's from. Um, but there's some theories about it. But we're just going to say the author of Hebrews. But we are going to kind of get this at the tail end of it. And I'll give some background after I read it. Um, but we're going to read this. I'm going to pray over our church and specifically that God would open our ears to what he has for us this morning, and then I will, I'll do some preaching on this text. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 1, we're going to go all the way to verse 16. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. By faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of that same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is good as dead, he is as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the opportunity they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country. Amen? A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, may it be so for us 
God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God, when we read this passage, we pray that you would, as I, as I preach on it, as I, as I preach about these words from Hebrews 11, we pray that you would stir our hearts to a deeper and more robust and more meaningful faith. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts to stir our affections to you. Convict us of sin. Convict us of the ways that we turn from you to the things of this world, the things of the flesh. And I pray that you would grow us up into men and women that look more and more like Jesus, the author and perfecter of this faith. Father, I pray that you would bless this church community. Continue to grow us in loving one another well. Continue to grow us in bearing with one another. Continue to grow us in encouraging one another. Continue to grow us into being the body of Christ, seeking to serve each other and honor and glorify you. Father, where there is need for reconciliation, bring that reconciliation and peace. Where there are people who are hurting in this church, may your kingdom come. Whether that's financially, they're without work, or bills are piling up, may your kingdom come. May you give them opportunities to glorify you in work and to earn. May you give us opportunities to support one another through difficult times. Father, where we are hurting physically, may you bring healing. Where we're hurting through trauma, may you make us whole again. And Father, we do pray for our neighborhood, and we're thankful for opportunities that you've given us to serve. We're thankful for ministries like Frontline. May you bless the work that they're doing. Bless our other partners as well. And may your kingdom come. May your will be done in Atlanta, in our communities, as it is in heaven. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, Hebrews 11. Just like I was saying, they we're catching this in the middle of, or kind of towards the tail end of the letter. But the main idea of what we're going to talk about today is that saving faith is more than simply a ticket to heaven. Say that with me. Saving faith is more than simply a ticket to heaven. The letter of Hebrews, this is beautiful letter, has been a masterclass presentation on the person and work of Jesus. If you are new to the faith or you are exploring the faith, there are going to be some parts of Hebrews, you know, where they're talking about Melchizedek and kind of some strange things going on you may need to ask your neighbor about, but this is a wonderful book to grow an understanding of who Jesus is and appreciation for the work that he's done. And especially in relation to dealing with God's people from the Old Testament. In essence, what has happened for these first ten chapters leading up to where we pick it up today is that everything the people knew about, know about what God did in the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews is helping them to understand that everything that happened before Jesus was a foreshadowing, a leading up to the person and work of Jesus. Everything that was planned, everything that had happened, was more fully and more completely done in and through the person of Jesus. All the systems of the Old Testament, all those temples, the sacrifices, all those, you know, sometimes confusing things, are like, what is going on? Those are no longer necessary. Why? Because of the person and work of Jesus. And so we get to this chapter 11, and we open it up, and it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance 
of what we do not see. The conviction of things not seen. So faith, what he, the author is kind of giving us the definition, can be broken down into these two parts, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. So looking ahead, we are in hopeful anticipation of what we cannot see, but what is promised to us. It's kind of this, the definition here. He's kind of repeating himself and saying it in different ways like a good teacher does to help their student understand what they're talking about. But one of the first questions we need to ask when we are looking at this text or any of the letters, when we're not just going through them kind of saying, what is the kind of theological nugget here? What's the truth here? Yes, that is good. But as we dig deeper, it's so good to ask ourselves the question of why is the author writing this way? As I dug into that question this week, the only explanation I had for the only explanation I could come up with is that the author observed that there were issues, there were troubles, there were struggles going on with the church that he's writing to. They decided that this is the exact message about faith that they needed to hear. This letter has been all about what it means to stay the course of trusting and following Jesus, especially if and rather when you're in challenging circumstances. So if that's the original audience, we're going to look at what this passage means to people who are trying to learn what it means to stay the course of trusting Jesus when you're going through challenging circumstances. So faith, going back to the definition here, is believing in things, some of, the, some of which have only been promised to you that have not been realized yet in the midst of hardship and trials. It means holding on to what you believe and acting accordingly even when your heart is struggling to do so. So I just want to say, I want to give a pass here. If you are in that camp where you've mastered following Jesus in challenging circumstances, you've mastered that when life is challenging, when you're going through suffering, when life is going, you know, your life is all, you know, as Fresh Prince would say, all flipped, turned upside down. If you have gone through those and you're like, gosh, I'm good. Like, I just stay the course. My eyes stay right on the prize. I never waver. I never struggle. You can just go ahead and like, exit early free pass from the pastor like go get your lunch beat the rush to the restaurants but for the rest of us which i imagine either you're you know scared to stand up right now or you can resonate with the rest of us saying this is incredibly hard i've been a christian now since i was right before i turned 16 was where i really dedicated my life to the lord i grew up in the church and so the truths were there but god really grabbed my heart when i was 15 and I can tell you, the older I get, I will not say this gets any easier. That there's more heartache, there's more pain, there's more struggle, there's more letdown, there's more disappointment. And so the idea that the life gets easier is a, a fallacy, a false hope that we have. And I sit here as, as one of your pastors here today, and I can look out in the room, and I won't make eye contact because I'll start crying, but I'll look out in the room, and I know so many of you have been or are going through incredibly difficult, challenging times. Whether it's with your own life, your own faith, your own health, your family, your kids, your parents, your siblings. And so this message is to the audience original audience 2,000 years ago, but it's for us 
as well. So what does he give us? What does the author do when he says this is what faith is? He doesn't just say go and do it. He does what we often do at Redeemer. He has a little testimony time. He's not quite as brave as we are. We give the mic away, which is the scariest thing we do as a pastor sometimes. And we just say, hey, here's the mic. Go for it. He just writes about it, which lesson learned maybe. That's the case here. But we're going to keep giving the mic away on Testimony Sundays here. But he writes to the people about these ancient heroes of the faith. And in doing so, he wants the audience to see that although their personal circumstances are unbelievably difficult. He's not minimizing their personal circumstances. He's not downplaying anyone's struggles. What he wants them to understand is as they struggle to follow Jesus, they are not unique in that struggle. As we struggle to follow Jesus in difficult, foggy times, we have a a lineage of brothers and sisters in the faith that have done that very thing. What I mean by this is that they aren't unique in the sense that trusting God to fulfill their promises when life looks bleak or overwhelmingly hard or you're shaking because you're scared so much. What the author wants us to understand is that we are not alone in that struggle. See, the great story of God's people is that this common experience of being God's chosen people, followers of Jesus, is to believe and embrace the great truths of the scripture, the promise of full forgiveness in Jesus, the promise that the Holy Spirit will guide us as God's people, the promise that Christ will return one day, amen, and wipe away all of our tears and make all things new. And the difficult part is that so many of God's promises, we will fully receive them one day, but we won't fully experience them this side of Christ coming back. I once heard a pastor, I think his name was Scott Lindsay, but then I thought his name was Lindsay Scott, but I think that's the guy that taught, caught the touchdown for Georgia like 40 years ago. So I oftentimes do that. I'm like, oh yeah, that's my friend Kevin Johnson. And I'm like, no, he played for the Suns in the 90s. Um, but I think his name was Scott Lindsay, but he was talking about this or a passage like this. And he brought up the illustration of a wonderful movie uh, called Waterworld. Raise your hand if you have seen Waterworld. Awesome. Yes, my 80s babies. Uh, come on up here. So Waterworld was, uh, uh, Kevin Costner was the lead for it. It'll pop up on that screen. Uh, it is just as cheesy as it looks right there. Uh, it was a re- pretty ridiculous piece of sci-fi theater and a colossal waste of money. I think it's actually number one for, like, it lost the most money of any movie in the history of movies. And so I just, just, but there is one very redemptive part in it that I want you to kind of get past that picture right there and just follow me here. But the whole world and the, and the whole, you know, movie of premise in a nutshell, just kind of like you'd gather, is that the world is covered in water. And so this guy, who's the mariner, played by Costner, is kind of this burned out, cynical, kind of half human, half amphibious, uh, extremely reluctant hero, and he is you know, the, the, the redeemer, you know, playing quite some of that role in the movie, but at a crucial point in the movie, and one of the coolest parts is definitely the jet skis. Who remembers the jet skis? Those were amazing. Um, but one of the other redemptive parts, the jet skis were redemptive, and the other redemptive part was that he, he, he rescues this woman, and I think there was maybe a kid with her, I can't remember that part, it's been a while since I saw the movie, but he takes him on board of his boat. And subsequently, the woman begins to talk to the mariner, Kevin Costner, about this place that she has heard of. 
That place that she has heard of is this place called Dry Land. And she wants to know if he has heard of it. And in response, the mariner absolutely 100% dismisses the idea. Even the mariner, that name is ridiculous. But the mariner dismisses the idea, insisting that no such place exists. So in the movie, dry land serves as kind of a metaphor, in my mind, to the promised land that we're heading towards. It's believed by some, but doubted by most, and even the ones that believe in it struggle sometimes to fully believe. But anyway, the woman is a true believer in dry land, and the faithless mariner, after he has had enough of her hearing about the dry land, he lashes out at her and says, what makes you so sure there is dry land? How do you even know it exists? To which the woman responds, the woman, this is the the Christian uh, kind of metaphor here, holds up her hands and yells out, look at us. Look at the way we are. We weren't made to live in the sea. We weren't meant to live in a place like this. We were meant for something different. That woman's response should sound familiar to you as God's people. Because that's the same sort of conclusion we have come to as true believers ourselves. Though this world does not satisfy, it does remind us there's something better. We were and are meant for something else, something more fulfilling that we're heading towards. The woman understood that she was made for so much more than this world and that that the world she saw with her own eyes. And her faith led her to believe not only that there was a better world out there, but that faith changed how she acted. So Hebrews 11 speaks to the power of faith. This chapter here is talking about the people of God. What stands out about these heroes here, as much as we would lift them up to say these are the heroes of the faith, I've heard it called the hall of faith. What stands out about them is not their personalities or their giftings. We're not told that Abraham was an incredibly resourceful kind of person, We're not told that his personality made him suited for kind of dealing with the disappointments that came to him. The only thing that we hear about him from the author here today was his faith. And by his faith, what a difference he made to the world. We don't know about Noah. We actually know, we don't know much about Noah. We know that he was a farmer, so he probably wasn't a good carpenter when he set out to build that ark. Genesis 6.22 simply says Noah did, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Was he good at counting to two? No idea. Was he good at corralling animals? I don't know that either. But I do know from this passage, the same thing you know, that he had a faith in the promise of God. What made him distinct wasn't his skill set, but the faith. We think about Sarah, a lady that is way past her childbearing years. But God chose to do a miracle in her. And what do we know about Sarah? We know that she was able to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. Without faith, none of these Hebrews, none of these heroes in Hebrews 11 would have lived for God in the ways that they did. But by faith, they lived with a power the world knows nothing about and gained a salvation that the world continues to ignore. And so therefore, at the end, because of their faith, verse 16 says, God is not ashamed to be called their God. 
Brothers and sisters, these stories are incredible to read. You go back and look in the Old Testament, these adventures are incredible to behold. These are men and women that we often are in awe of. But to be honest, when I read them, I'm sad to say that I have the same feelings that I often experience when I go watch someone do something incredibly inspiring. There's a couple at the church, Corey and Amy, that run a theater company, and I've gotten to see them in a number of uh, their uh, plays, uh, theatrical performances, and every time I watch, uh, and Corey's usually behind the scenes in the ones I've been to, and Amy's up front, and I leave incredibly entertained and also thinking, gosh, that was so inspiring, and I could never do that. That is, she is so talented at that. Other examples of this are, and I warned you about this, so you know you can't get mad at me. But when I went to see Top Gun a month ago, um, I warned you this was coming. Uh, so you know, I just be prepared here. But when I left Top Gun, as many of you also did, who I've talked to, you have these incredible feelings of inspiration. You feel so, you're so inspired by the courage of people in that movie or another movie. The sacrifice that they have, the bravery. And I won't give away the ending of that movie, but the courage that was displayed in that, you know, uh, you know uh, fictional movie, the courage that was displayed to, that was necessary to defeat the enemy, the risking of life not only for the mission, but for the comrades, for the friends. It was so stinking inspiring. I feel like my, my, my daughter who's sitting next to me, she had to like move over because I kept kind of nudging her, being like, did you see that? Did you see that? Are you watching this? <laughs> and no joke, when I got done, I started Googling how old is too old, and Google just filled in the rest for me to join the military. Like It's like the half of America had Googled that. <laughs> and I left the theater, and there, good news, I still have like eight more months until I can join the Air Force. That's the last one, but I have eight more months. But I left the theater, and honestly, if, if Tom Cruise had been waiting for me in the lobby and had told me, like, he needed me to train to be a fighter pilot, like, I, I'd resign yesterday. Like, I'd have been out of here because it's so hard to say no because I was so inspired leaving a movie like that and so pumped. But realistically, if I'm honest with you, what happens to my life after watching that movie? I've got an adrenaline rush for a couple days. I've gone down a dark hole with Google searches. I've gotten a great dose of nostalgia and me reminding my kids that movies were just better in the 80s than they are now. But beyond that, I think so often, you may react the same way. We're fans of these stories. We're inspired by these stories. But nothing else changes in our lives. We need to understand that God is calling us to be more than just moviegoers to stories of the Scripture. More than just fans, he wants us to join in on the adventure of following God, of trusting God in your own unique calling of what he's called you to do. We need to understand that though these are titans of the faith, because of the blood of Jesus and the promises given to us, you and I, you hundred-ish you know, people sitting in this room, you men, you women, you are peers to Abraham. You are peers to to Enoch. You are peers to Noah. The promises that they received, we have the same promises. The faith that seems so out of this world, so movie-esque that we're reading about here, the same God that gave them that faith to change them is the same God that gave you the saving faith that changes you. 
They didn't muster up faith. No, they got it the same way we got it as a gift from the Father. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, my favorite 10 verses in the Bible are Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, but 2, 8 and 10 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Let's say that together. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So that gift of God, you did nothing to receive. All you did was show up saying, I am a sinner in all of the holiness of God in desperate need of forgiveness and salvation. And God not only forgave you, he gave you that faith. That same faith Abraham has. He didn't, Abraham didn't get like an extra dose or anything. Like you got the same dose, the same life-changing faith that these men and women in Hebrews 11 got, you have as well. And so you may not be able to act on a stage like some of our friends. You probably aren't going to have the credentials or training necessary to fly fighter jets. You don't have the height or skills necessary or the knees. In Leon's case, that was the only thing holding him back from the NBA was his knees. You probably don't have that for the NBA, but every single Christian in this room has been given the gift of faith. And that faith that you've been given, that assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen, is what is required of you to live out your unique calling. And so that gets us to the final question, and what we'll close here with is, what are you called to? And you cannot say nothing. You cannot. You're insulting, you're insulting the Scripture and the Lord by minimizing what you've been called to. That Ephesians passage 2, 8, and 10, it goes on to say, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So unless you're prepared to biblically prove to me Ephesians 2.10 doesn't apply to you, I need you to be thinking, what is God calling me to? And some of you are called to things that people will write books about or you know, write movies about. But many of you, if not all of you, are called to things just like I am. Not an extravagant life they're going to make a movie about, as the world would define extravagance. But you are called to an incredible adventure ahead of you. And so what this could look like is different for all of you. Some of your calling, part of all of our calling, is inside the four walls of this church. Every one of you has been called to love your brother and sister as yourself. Members here have committed to it. You've said, I will encourage one another. I will love one another. You're calling, just like Noah was called to build an ark, you're calling, honestly, sometimes it feels as hard as building an ark, is to love the person next to you well, to sacrifice for them. Some of you are called to unique jobs where you are serving us in the city of Atlanta in very unique ways, whether it's officers or nurses or teachers or ministry leaders. Some of you are called to honor the Lord in your jobs in the business world. You're sitting there with Excel spreadsheets 40 hours a week, and you are honoring the Lord with that, and you are called to do so. Some of you are called to be parents, and that calling to raise those kids in the ways of the Lord is nothing short of the calling of Noah to build an ark. It is incredibly hard, incredibly meaningful, and we need to depend on the Lord for direction and guidance. Some of you are called to love your parents or your sisters. The list goes on and on, but none of you, and excuse the double negative here, none of you are called for no calling. You are called to great things. 
And though we may think they are simple, they are nothing short of glorious and nothing short of incredibly vital for the kingdom of God. So your homework today, or first there's a quote from R.C. Sproul I want to read, and then your homework today. R.C. Sproul, an incredibly impactful theologian to both Pastor Mac and I, says, Saving faith is not a mere act of receiving Jesus. Saving faith receives Jesus to go on trusting him. Saving faith is a life of faith. So your homework today is you need to ask the question of what is God calling me to? What roles is God calling me to in my life? And then what does it look for me? What does it look like for me to trust God in this calling? How does the saving faith I receive not just stay as a ticket to heaven, but what does it look like to go on trusting Jesus in the midst of my calling? And as you explore this, I want you to never forget that the one that gives you that faith, that gave you that faith, the one who sustains you in that faith, is also the good Father that loves you, even as you and I stumble along in the faith that we receive, even as we go two steps forward and eight steps back in the calling he's given us, he's not angry with you, but he's a good dad, encouraging you, rooting for you, guiding you, directing you, and loving you so well. In Christ's name, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the beauty of the scriptures and the inspiring stories of Hebrews 11. But I pray that you, through the Spirit, would remind us of the faith that you've given us. And may we live into the calling that you've directed us to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.